2: you have an Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host chase thomas Podcast the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it All right,
0: hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase on Podcast. where I'm still the aforementioned Chase. I'm just coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, everything School HQ, over there in Denver, Colorado. Friend of the Big Orange, Denver Gazette, ESPN, Around the Horn, legend, Woody Page is here. Woody, good evening, sir. How are you?
3: Well, I'm not a legend. I think that's when you die
0: no uh, you can be a legend you, there's a they had the term living legend for a reason
3: i was back uh about a year ago one of my best friends uh died in memphis so i, I mm-hmm. went to Knoxville and i went to memphis and while i was in memphis i, I visited the gravesites of my mom and dad because mm-hmm. i grew up in memphis my dad was from mississippi my mother from uh, south memphis and so I went out to visit with him and I talked to them and I said to my dad, who told me when I was a kid, you can't find your butt with both hands, son. <laughs> he thought I was gonna be worthless and maybe I am. And so I must tell you the story. I didn't quite remember, it had been a while, and, and it's one of those cemeteries where all of the grave sites are flat with the ground.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It's difficult to find, you know, where you want to go right and it's been a couple of years since i've been there and so i went into the funeral home and this guy came up to me and he said i'm the director of the funeral home we're just honored to have you here Mm
4: -hmm.
3: it's it's like a strange thing at a cemetery to have somebody say honored to have you there he introduced me to everybody else they said is pages famous uh, memphis journalist uh, denver He's on ESPN, he's been on ESPN forever. And he said, in fact, if he comes and joins his mother and father here, he'll be the most famous person in this cemetery. <laughs> and all I could think about is I was sitting there talking to my parents, I said, mm. I hope I don't come be with you. I was, I was having one of those moments anybody's mm-hmm. ever gone through that where you go back to visit someone who's died. And I said- yeah just hope mom and dad that they don't have tour buses to come by and say you know we don't have Elvis we don't have Stax uh, records producers but we've got Woody Page and people get off the bus and take pictures of my site. so yeah. anyway
0: that's funny do you have any Elvis stories growing up in Memphis? Pardon me? Do you have any uh, Elvis stories growing up in Memphis?
3: I'm writing uh, I don't want to call it memoirs but I'm writing uh, stories Mm -hmm. of my life in sports and out of sports and the title of of the book, and I'm actually working on it today. Mm -hmm. The title of the book is From Elvis to ESPN. Oh, okay. Uh, Elvis and I grew up uh, in the same government housing project, and he was about three. It's still there. It's right by, have have you ever spent any time in Memphis?
0: I've never been to Memphis, nope.
3: Oh, you should go wherever goes and visits Graceland.
0: <laughs> I know. I need to go at some point. I just, it's funny to me that Tennessee is so big where like I'm from Atlanta originally. It's three and a half hours to Atlanta. It's the same distance from Knoxville to Jacksonville, Florida as it is from Knoxville to Memphis, Tennessee. It's a, it's a haul.
3: It was 400 miles when I mm-hmm. school, Tennessee. It was 400 miles and we'd make it in like four hours and 15 minutes. Hold on. You got, got from
0: Memphis to Knoxville in four hours and 15 minutes?
3: There was no freeway system then. Okay. It's the most terrible story you ever heard, but we were 17 year old kids and Mm -hmm. four of us in a car driving from Memphis to Knoxville and we'd go at night and you could do 115 miles an hour. So it's no wonder. So you drive through Nashville and you stop and Mm -hmm. get uh, donuts at Krispy Kreme or something, uh, cups of coffee, and
4: uh,
3: and we would continue. You asked me earlier about. Coffee when I was an all night disc jockey in Knoxville mm-hmm. on Cumberland Avenue, where our studio was around the just south of the campus, I want to say. And I was on from midnight to six, and I would drink coffee all night long to keep up because I was studying while I was playing music from midnight to six. And I found out that. uh I played a song in a Ghana de that was 19 minutes long and I would go to the Crystal hamburger place. I assume you've had those,
1: Georgia
4: mm.
3: and Tennessee. Yep. I would go there and get my breakfast during the middle of the night and I'd play this long song and I'd come back to the studio and I had plenty of time to do it. And I came back to the studio one night and, it, and the record was skipping. This was long before there were tapes mm. and the record, was, it, it got into me, it starts out, da, 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 It was going, da, 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 <laughs> da, 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 da. And I went, oh, I'm in trouble. They're going to fire me. Nobody complained. That none of the listeners called. Nobody at this station ever said anything. And I realized nobody was listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was drinking coffee all night. And then I'd go to class at 8 o'clock in the morning. So i tried mm-hmm. try to study here. Whatever I was doing in the middle of the night. Anyway. I is love there that. Any, is there anywhere in your question? I don't think I so. mean, we're.
0: Oh. Well, oh, Elvis. Yeah. And back to oh, Memphis. Yeah. Did you ever meet Elvis?
3: Oh, uh, maybe 150 times.
0: Oh. Okay. When, I was, when
3: I was five and six, he was 12 years older than me. I'm 77 mm. now. So he would be 89. Mm -hmm. Um, I would walk down. So where I played was now St. Jude Hospital. If you've never gone to Memphis, but people listening to this podcast know where St. Jude Hospital is the most famous children's hospital in the world. Nobody ever Mm -hmm. thinks it out. That was an empty field next to the housing project, which when I went back a couple of years ago, I went back to see what uh, if anybody's seen the Elvis movie, you can see the project in the very beginning. Have you seen the Elvis movie that came out?
0: No, my wife and I did see Priscilla a couple months ago. We have not seen Elvis. Yeah,
3: I watched that because I went to high school with her. I uh, uh, didn't. Uh, I didn't want to see that. I'd seen the Elvis movie, but mm-hmm. they show uh, Lauderdale Courts where we lived. You couldn't live there if you made over thirty dollars a month. So mm-hmm. did.
4: Like
3: My dad was making a dollar a day, so he was making about $22 a month. Mm. We could live there, and Elvis's father was an electrician, and so they they also moved there. Uh, And and it was mostly for people coming from Mississippi and Arkansas, because the Mid-South was based in Memphis, Tennessee, being on the Mississippi. So people would come from the farmlands around there, uh, Eastern Tennessee not Eastern Tennessee, Western Tennessee, and migrate to the big city, which Memphis was at the time, looking for jobs. So anyway, I would walk down two apartments away, two apartment buildings away, and there was a high school kid standing on the front porch with a guitar with greasy black hair, uh, singing songs. And I would sit in the grass and listen to him. I was a little kid and I'd, Mm. I'd been playing where St. Jude Hospital eventually became uh, the major hospital there for kids. And so I'd come every day and I'd bring like two or three of my friends that I played with and we'd sit in the grass and he would give us a concert every day. And we had no Mm -hmm. idea, he was was nobody. And I asked my mother, said, where do you go? And I go, there's a kid down the way. And she said, that's Elvis Presley. He's trying to be a country singer or something. And so I kid, and she said, Presley's about to nothing because they were from Tupelo, Mississippi. That's mm.
4: where he was born. And and they were Elvis Presley was
3: considered uh, someone who lived on the wrong side of the trike. Mm. <laughs> and so anyway, later on, one of my cousins became, it was a famous group. His posse was called the Memphis Mafia. Mm-hmm. And my family, when we had, uh, became lower middle class, bought a home behind Graceland. There was a subdivision called Graceland. And that's where I went school, was Graceland. And I would go up to uh, Graceland all the time. And one of his uncles was the security guard. And he'd let me in, and I, my cousin, as I said, was one of the hangers on with Elvis, and I'd go over to Graceland and listen to him uh, play music, and uh, go visit his grandmother who lived upstairs, and so I was around him. We played touch football. You could actually look it up on on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played in a touch football game against Elvis and his. Uh, uh, Crew.
0: Was he good? Brought, pardon me. Was oh, he no, good? He was,
3: no, he <laughs> was a he was a mama's boy. He never played at all. He was a uh,
0: yeah musician. He, yeah, he,
3: yeah. And so we were told it was guys I went to high school. We were told mm. to tackle it was touch football, like the pro bowl is Yeah. <laughs> Don't tackle Elvis. Don't even try to tackle him, let him run for a touchdown. Mm-hmm. And so we were under no uncertain terms that we were not to tackle him or grab the handkerchief out of his pocket. And he caught a pass and he fell in a hole and fell on his white right hand. And everybody rushed over. And my cousin, who worked for him, said, I told you not to tackle him. I said, he tripped, he fell, he's not an athlete. He mm. broke his thumb, they took him to the hospital. He was in a cast for like six weeks or two months. He couldn't play the guitar and it became a national story, in a national story, you can look it up. Mm. And we were blamed. They blamed these <laughs> high school people for beating up on Elvis. We never touched him. He fell mm. in a hole that was on the football field. And people would find out that we were playing uh, touch football and there'd be like 500 people would show up and Mm -hmm. they all, all exactly what happened. But the story in the national newspapers and magazines were Elvis got kind of bullied by (laughs) this high school football team, which wasn't true. So anyway. So So you played football
0: growing up. Were you a good athlete?
3: uh, I played, uh, um, I played in the only game you haven't ever heard you went you went to graduate school and I know, I know you went to mm-hmm. in georgia, university of northern georgia you went to tennessee to get your master's degree mm-hmm. i played one year in the orange and white english block game okay and what makes it interesting i was a sophomore what makes it interesting is sports illustrated and you can you can google this anybody listening to you, google this Tennessee put on an exhibition at the inter-squad game. There were about 10,000 people there. In conjunction with Sports Illustrated, with 12-foot gyms, 12-foot mm-hmm. gyms. Because there was a lot of talk then, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when he was Louis al because of him and others who were becoming, who were seven-footers that were playing college basketball, and they outlawed uh, the dunk.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And there was some concern about raising the rims from ten feet to twelve feet, and so Ray Mears, who was the coach at Tennessee, agreed to do this experiment with Sports Illustrated uh, with twelve-foot goals. And Coach Mears called me and said, "You want to play in the game?" Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, yeah. So what we found is that the ball would come off the rim farther out. The rebounds were easier for guards than they were for centers. And yeah. you couldn't just get it up and you couldn't dunk. And I ended the game with uh, uh, one basket, two points, and one rebound. And, and the Knoxville News Central uh, still has that box score somewhere. <laughs> and I got a call from one of the players when I was on ESPN. He said, are you the same guy? <laughs> Okay, we didn't know who the hell you were. Uh,
4: mm.
3: yeah, I played uh, basketball, baseball, but I was a great athlete. But I was uh, the editor of this, uh, the Daily Newspaper, and I think as part of the experience, the basketball coach who I'd ripped in my column in the YouTube Daily Beacon and said he should be fired, I think he called me to try and uh, get me closer to his side by asking me to play in there. That instructor.
0: So. You and Paul Feinbaum both have interesting stories about Tennessee basketball coaches.
3: Yeah. Paul, Paul and I have done his show uh, mm. half a dozen times. And, and as I said, he uh, when he came to school there and sort of followed me with the UT Daily Beacon, the school newspaper, as you well know, it's still there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a digital newspaper now. But uh, Paul became a rather well-known writer there. I, w- I was a sports columnist, a general columnist, and editor of it, which sounds a lot more impressive than it really was, because most people didn't want me part of working for the school newspaper. <laughs> I could call my shots. I I was an editorial cartoonist. I'd I'd do cartoons. (laughs) But when Paul came and became rather well-known as a a journalist there, uh, they did tell him, don't be like Woody Page. And he still Mm -hmm. reminds me of whenever I go on his show on the SEC Network. And uh, we produced, when I say we, I used we, meaning Tennessee, a lot of uh, uh, outstanding journalists and and broadcasters who've come out of uh, Tennessee. Uh, One of the most famous has one of the stadiums named for him. Mm. And he lived in Oxford forever. And they're probably, I would say, 10 to 15 uh, guys that are on ESPN or Fox Sports or or major columnists around the country, like outstanding writers for magazines that, that came out of the program there and of course you came out of it because you're doing this terribly exciting popular day. Are you doing a daily podcast?
0: I am doing daily. Uh, I actually have an announcement that Uh, we'll we'll talk about off air about what's happening uh, with Tennessee uh, as well, but no, this is daily national and uh, I cover it all uh, each and every day.
3: I I did podcasts for about three years. It's a very difficult, job mm. especially as you found out and you know uh and getting guests yeah so that's why I, I tend to agree to do them particularly when i saw that you we were Tennessee man, uh because it's difficult i had a, i had people like joe David and uh, rock and roll stars and stuff like that on mine and, and it's still online. a lot of national comedians came on my show yeah. because they think money on espn but who's uh, your favorite
0: uh, guest. Yeah, just, yeah. Who was your favorite person to talk to?
3: I, I think that Joe Namath was the most interesting because hmm. he was in school at Alabama the same time I was in school at Tennessee and he yeah. majored in journalism. And the reason why he majored in journalism at uh, Alabama was, he said that was the easiest subject to major. <laughs> and I said, I totally agree with you. And mm-hmm. We were going to do an hour show. This was about a year and a half ago. We were mm. going to do an hour show, and at the end of the hour, he said, I don't want to quit. So we ended up doing about three hours, and I I, I made it into three different podcasts because he was telling me he now lives in Florida, where his daughter lives. And mm. he basically raises his daughter's, uh, well, his grandkids. He's in the Sarasota area, if you're familiar with that. And mm-hmm. he he was fascinating. Uh because he was Broadway Joe, and because they won the Super Bowl, and it was around that time when, that, when I interviewed him. And I, I never – I talked to him when I worked for the Memphis Commercial Appeal uh, when they were coming to Memphis for an exhibition game when he played for the Jets, and that was the last time I'd really talked to him. And it was funny. I was a sports columnist at the Commercial Appeal, and I'd be working on my column, and I was talking to Joe Namath, and I hung up the phone because I got phone call. The NFL set it up. And I said, hello. And they, and, and they said, this is Joe Namath. I'm supposed to call Woody Page. And I was a kid, like I was you know, 22 years old. And Joe Namath is talking to me.
1: Yeah.
3: And we talked for about 30 minutes. And it was fascinating. And so I reminded him that. Of course, he didn't remember it. I told him that as soon as I hung up the phone, I turned and said, him, I just talked to Joe Namath. And, and my <laughs> phone rang, and I wondered, who could this be? And I picked up the phone and he said, I've got the high school track, Agate, I want you to do. And yeah. so, I got. I went from Joe Namath to mm-hmm. typing up the results of a high school track meet. And I went, yeah. that's a humble job. So, it still is. Uh, on the podcast, that Lewis Black, who's a famous, uh,
1: Oh, yeah. Uh,
3: yeah, was, been on TV for years. He and I He's a phenomenal. Yeah, we've become uh, close friends, and he came on and did about two hours on the show, and the former commissioner of baseball, uh, I had great fun doing it, but it was a lot of work, as you found out, so that's my it, it is reason, funny. But-
0: People think you just put on your headphones, and you just go, and that's just not how it goes. It's a well, whole well, lot more well, to yeah. it.
3: I have a feeling about that, because I do a round of horn, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, we're, we're in our 22nd year, I think it's 22nd and I've been with ESPN about 23 years, and my friends will say to me, oh, so you show up, you do 30 sec, thirty minutes, and then you go home. Wow, oh. you paid a lot of money for that? Yes, I get paid a lot of money for that. I'd love to have that job, and I got an email from a guy said, I'm a plumber's assistant. Uh, I dropped out of high school. I've got a wife and three kids. And I go to the bar at night and I drink with my buddies. And they say, you should be on Around the Horn. You're better (laughs) than those guys. And I Mm -hmm. said, I have no doubt you're better than I am. But you can't just show up (laughs) and do it. Mm -hmm. It There's actually, 25 years went into preparing to be in that position. But we spent... For the inside story for people, we have conference calls on Zoom in the morning. You, you're using another system, but we have a Zoom mm-hmm. conference call every morning for an hour and a half to go over all the subjects. Yeah, and that's the way all of these programs, because I did one out of New York uh, called Cold Pizza for years. Which I worked with mm-hmm. Skip, who's now on the Fox Sports Network. And we'd get there at 3.30 in the morning and go through conferences and research for hours before we went on the air live for two hours every day. And so around the horn, just for the people who have never watched it, we have about an hour and a half of a conference call in the morning. And then we start doing, I get up very early in the morning and go through all the stuff that I spend tonight. When we get finished here, I'll spend mm-hmm. it watching NBA games and NHL games. You want to get as, familiar as you can because this isn't like someone covering Tennessee football and that's what you yeah. concentrate on. We have got to be at least familiar with or knowledgeable about every sport in the world. Because <laughs> yeah. every day and I mean I go to Olympics and I've covered like I don't know 15 Olympics. And I show up at Olympics and I wouldn't even know what how like Taiwan go.
1: Yeah.
3: Do, I didn't even know what it was, and I'd show up and cover it. And in Australia, I covered one of the greatest sports events of all time that nobody else was covering. That was uh, the heavyweight uh, championship wrestling match. Uh huh. And the greatest wrestler in the whole world from Russia had won, like, four Olympic gold medals and never been beaten and never even been scored upon, and, and a kid from uh, – Utah, Wyoming, beating. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it and I look around and there's no other press there because they're all covering the track and field. And I thought, I don't know how to cover this sport And I had to find out in like 15 minutes. Anyway, we go yeah. through the process, we do research. Uh then I do makeup. Uh I have a an associate who does my makeup and my hair, and uh, we have more conversations before the show goes on. We tape in the middle of the day. It takes us about an hour and a half to do the show. So there's Mm -hmm. about, I would say, five, six hours a day that goes into putting together a rep. So that's the same way as you spend five or six hours getting guests, uh, preparing Mm -hmm. what you're going to do, whatever advertising marketing you're doing, Um, it's not just showing up. And uh, the show did start with uh, when they came to me and said, we're going to do a uh, second show to Pardon Interruption, which became a Mm -hmm. very successful show. on ESPN and companionship. Yeah, And I said, we want you to be on it. You're the first person to talking to and I said, well, well what, what is it gonna be like? And they said, like Hollywood squares. <laughs> and if you think about, if you've ever watched Around the mm-hmm. Horn, kind of the concept where they said, you're gonna be like the middle square, Paul in yeah. the Block. And I said, is this gonna be a game show? Well, well in a sort of way, cause we're gonna score it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And people, ask me, do you know who's going to win before? I don't know until the last moment. And there are a lot of times when they go, you've won, what's your 30 seconds? I have no <laughs> idea because I didn't think I was going to win. I'd be like eight points yeah. behind. Anyway, there's a lot of work that goes into it just like that does in your job. Like I think that everybody that either is going to school or has a job realizes that it's hard work. Yeah. Whether you're selling insurance, whether you're, a plumber's assistant, or whether you're doing television, we we have fun at it, but we work at it. You have to yeah. work at it. There are mistakes made, so we redo segments. We might go too long, so we retape a, a segment. There are breaks to put in the highlights for the next segment. There are questions about whether the, that segment actually was very good. Or there was a mistake made in statistics because when you're talking fast, you know this. When you're talking to somebody, yeah. you may not get every statistic or every team that played in the bowl correctly. RV played in the Super Bowl of the last weekend, so it, it's interesting. When I was in New York with ESPN for three, a little over three years, something like that. I was doing six shows. Uh, six different shows every week that I was doing. Hmm. Round one, I was doing a show with uh, Skip Bayless in the morning, a two-hour show that was like the Today
4: Show. That was ESPN's
3: version of Good Morning America. Called Cold Pizza, we did a show called uh, First and Ten. We did a show called First Take, which is still hmm. on the air. With Stephen A. Smith. Uh, we started that. I was doing a show that was a takeoff on American Idol. And it was called uh, Dream Job, and twelve thousand applicants would compete to be on. Was this the Wendy's one? Uh, The one
0: sponsored by Wendy's? What was that? The the Searching for America? I remember a Wendy's one years ago. They,
3: they, 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 there were a lot of ESPN sports bars then. If you remember Mm -hmm. that one,
0: ESPN, the ESPN Zone, is that what it was called? ESPN Zone. And Mm. so
3: people would apply, and they'd have. uh, Auditions at all of the yeah. ESP clubs. And they narrowed it down to 12. And I was one of the judges like on mm. American Idol or you know America's Got Talent. The winner got to be, and most of them I think were, you know, in the departments of communication, like you, you have been, mm. journalism. And they narrowed down to twelve and we would cut one a week. So it was like 13 weeks. Still yeah. Scott. The late Stu Scott, who's one of the best guys i ever worked with, was the host of the show. I'll tell you one story that came out of that. it It'd be interesting. Uh, Stephen A. Smith was a judge. I was a judge, vice president of uh, ESPN, who hired people, was a judge. There yeah. were well, three judges, four, actually, one other, And we'd work on that for like 18 hours. It was live, <laughs> yeah. but only the was a we would work throughout the day and the night with the twelve and so we got to the finals we did uh, three four seasons of that uh, and we got down to the last two and one of them wasn't very good he ended up doing but they kept saying to me he's got a great personality would you vote for it so there was behind the scenes thing that's why I don't the only piece of advice I give to people: don't think that reality shows are for real. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, have you ever seen uh, the one where they go to uh, storage units?
0: Oh storage yeah, wars. hoarders and or, or oh, storage wars yeah. and all that. Yeah,
3: put stuff in those storage units. I mean, mm-hmm. Units have dirty clothes in it and newspapers. Yeah, so they put diamonds in there and people discover it. So all mm-hmm. of the. There's no way that these shows are live. They have to be mm-hmm. faked all day. Anyway, so they, they would say, the producer would say, uh, what do you think of this guy? And I said, not very good. Well, he's got a great personality. Can you help us out here? And I said, I don't want to be put in jail for fixing a reality show. But they we were, they were down to the two finalists, and Stu Scott, as I said, was the host of the show. And the one guy was really good, and he ended up winning. The guy who didn't win ended up doing Pizza Hut commercials for years, so huh. he actually became more famous than the guy who was on ESPN. And I think he's still in broadcasting at some point. Mm-hmm. So, went up to be an anchor on ESPN, ninety-five thousand dollars in cash, a brand new convertible uh, uh, Mustang, Ford Mustang, mm-hmm. and so it was a pretty good. End up for uh, whoever won. So it came down to the two people. The guy who ultimately won when he got through. Stephen A. Smith went through his hooray, and they said to me, "What do you think of?" That? I said, "You were rock solid, <laughs> son. You rock solid. Mm. You because well, they would turn the uh, the microphones off when they were interviewing people, and they had to overcome all sorts of obstacles." And I said, You had a perfect show tonight. Mm. So now I got to turn to the other guy. And I said, You know, you were good too, because I didn't want to put him down. Mm. You were good too. You were rock. And I was trying to think, I can't say rock solid because I've already said it about Delia. What is it? I asked you, Chase, what is the word you can use after rock? That was Hard. <laughs> That's what I said. There was the studio audience of about. <laughs> I don't know, a lot of people. Stuart Scott <laughs> fell on the floor laughing. Those people were were going berserk. And I'm saying to the guy, you know, you were rock hard. You were rock hard. And I went, that's not what you want to say, a live national TV with a million people watching. And we laughed through that, and we had a, a – a, a, a party afterward of all, they brought back all the people who had been on the show. And mm-hmm. he came over and he said, I think that I didn't win. <laughs> but I think you have the most famous line in the history of ESPN television. And mm-hmm. I think I a commercial out of it. And he ended up getting a Pizza Hut commercial. And they actually the, the uh, advertising company that agency that hired him said, we loved it when the guy called and said you we were rock hard. He said we just <laughs> Guy He was rock my car. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going on. No, I,
0: mean, I love sure
3: that. To talk about.
0: I mean, anyway, I, I love that.
3: Back to the first question. I knew Elvis would come to Colorado. Uh, in his later years, on vacation, go to Aspen mm-hmm. and he Denver, and he went to a restaurant that I would go to, a steakhouse, and I. Uh, my my friends over the steakhouse said elvis is here and elvis i i saw him throughout the years i used to when i was in high school in addition to playing touch football he would he would rent out a movie theater because this was before uh vcrs or mm-hmm. hbo or anything he'd rent a movie theater out and show and and get to see the screenings of three different movies and so he rented the movie theater from midnight to six AM, and he'd invite like twenty people,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and I would ask whoever I was dating if they want to go watch movies with Elvis. Their parents thought I was the biggest lying, cheating <laughs> kid in the world. Mm-hmm. My mother called me and explained it really is going on because you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to say to the parents when they say, I want my daughter to be home at midnight, I go, she'll be home about 8 o'clock tomorrow. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> go to the Memphian movie theater. That was the one that Elvis rented out, and we had to wait in the lobby. We could pick out whatever candies. You could get as much candy as you wanted, popcorn, folks, and stuff like that, but you couldn't go into the movie theater until Elvis and his girlfriend or Priscilla mm. would go into the movie theater. Wherever they sat, you had to sit behind them, and mm. watch three. Movies, and we get finished about 6 30 7 o'clock in the morning and because my cousin was one of his Memphis mafia you know, entourage because mm-hmm. now athletes all have entourages well elvis was one of the first like frank sinatra they have you know entourages security guards basically
1: mm-hmm.
3: we would go do that so i knew elvis throughout my life and he always remembered that I was the kid that sat by that porch when he was a high school student and I was a little kid clapping for him on the front porch. And so mm-hmm. at the end of his life, uh, he was coming to Denver and that's when it was, it was in his fat period at the end where he couldn't lose the weight. And we'd have dinner at a steak restaurant and uh, talk about old times in Memphis.
4: Uh, yeah,
3: so I, that's the finish to, to story I you. love it. So, The book I'm writing is for me is from Elvis D.S.P.N. because I feel like uh, Forrest Gump. uh, If if anyone remembers that movie, Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. He he ended up being with people and you go, he can't be next to the president. Mm -hmm. But they stuck him in all the scenes, famous uh, movie scene. That's been basically my life where I was in Cuba and met Fidel Castro, almost by accident, and he ended up telling, there was a group of us, a small group, we were talking baseball. He wanted to talk baseball, because Fidel mm-hmm. Castro always wanted to be a major league baseball player. And some team had signed him, Cuba would probably still be a democratic country. But we were talking baseball, and, and someone came in and handed him a sheet of paper, and... Uh, he announced to us in perfect English. He said the Gulf War started. So this is 1992. The the mm-hmm. uh, games were get, being held in Cuba, and I thought, is this where I want to be? And yeah. I asked if Saddam Hussein had called him, or uh, the U.S. had no uh, uh, had no political uh, arrangements with Cuba at that time. And he said no. It's on. He said in perfect English. He said it's on CNN. Ted Turner had given him a satellite dish so he could watch the Atlanta Brace. And CNN. Anyone that's old enough to remember the Gulf War, the scenes on CNN that night of, of Baghdad and and the missiles coming in. Mm. Uh, and I thought, is this where I want to be? If there's all out war, you know, I'm in Havana, Cuba. With Fidel Castro. So my life has been where uh, when the Dream Team went to Barcelona, uh, I hung out with uh, Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan and we'd play, mm. uh, black, we'd go play blackjack and then we'd uh, go out drinking and I remember Charles Barkley saying uh, can't be a drunk in this town because they were training in Monte Carlo the Dream Team, <laughs> the original mm-hmm. team. and he said you can't be a drunk in this town. I said what do you mean? He said Beards are $18. <laughs> and I thought, you are very rich, not like it is today, mm-hmm. but hardly very good. And he's complaining about the price of beards in Monte Carlo while I'm sitting next to Michael Jordan at the blackjack table in the casino in Monte Carlo. And I'm winning $10, 10 francs, 25 francs. And he's losing 25,000 francs on the same hand. And I'm going yeah, I got blackjack. And he said, Calm it down. Because <laughs> so, he's losing. He was a terrible. I'm mm. off op- 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 him. So, I mean, things have happened in my life just being around sports and just people. The, anyway, that's what I'm not here to promote the book.
4: It will be out
0: sometime. Next Who is the biggest based on what you know about the the player publicly versus what how you got to know him and see them privately who who was the biggest difference in terms of personality from what you saw from the outside versus how they were uh just around regular folks
3: i've never quite been asked that question uh i'll think about it during while we just sit here and talk but uh Arnold Palmer hmm. was one of the nicest people I ever was around in my life. And I was at Pebble Beach for the US Open. Tom Watson chipped in on the 17th hole to ended up beating Jack Nicklaus. And Palmer, I, I, I asked Palmer if I could, he was coming to Denver like a day later for an exhibition. Mm. And I said, can I interview you when you get to Denver? I won't bother you here. That was his, I think the was open. And he said, When are you going home? And I said, tomorrow morning. And he said, I'm flying to Denver tomorrow morning. Fly on my plane. And so he had the Otto Palmer plane, AP1, and he uh pounded it, and every airport would say, How you doing, Arnie? <laughs> he talked to everybody across the country we were in uh, pebble beach coming Mm -hmm. you know a thousand miles or something it was about a three or four hour three hour flight i'd say and so about halfway through the flight he um turned it over to his co-pilot and he came back it was a learjet and we talked for about an hour and a half and he brought out sandwiches his wife had made for us And I thought that was interesting, uh, that we just experienced Taylor Swift flying from Tokyo to get to the Super Bowl. And I can't imagine that she was eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich like Arnold Palmer and I were. Uh, Dr. J, she serving. Uh, I covered him when he came into the American Basketball Association. We've remained friends for a long time. He was the, until then, the most dynamic player. I won't say he was the greatest. Player. Will chamber Will Chamberlain was not the greatest player. Bill Russell was the greatest. He, he won eleven championships. Mm-hmm. Bill, Russell, in my mind, was the best NBA uh, player of all time, not talent wise, but if people are talking about that now. That Patrick Mahomes is the goat. No, mm-hmm. Tom Brady's the goat. Joe Montana was the goat when he won those Super Bowls were the 49ers. Are they the most talented players? No, but the greatest of all time was Will Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. Jim Irving was the most acrobatic. I don't know. I wrote a line when I saw him play in his first ABA game. Nobody ever heard of Gene Irving. He was a kid that came out of school early out of Massachusetts. He was playing in the league. Nobody paid any attention to the ABA. And I saw him and I, Wrote this line. I said when he went up for a dunk, it was so dynamic that everybody, everybody in the arena, their ears popped. Mm-hmm. Like when you know are going to a higher altitude, or right. You, you go to Gallagher, you can feel mm-hmm. your ears pop. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what I experienced that night. And he was the nicest guy in the world. And I tend to. I'll I'll give you an example on the other end. Two guys live in Denver. Uh, most people won't remember them because you have to be. But there was a left-handed pitcher in baseball who was the worst guy in the whole world. And there was a basketball player who led the league and scored. I'll say his name because I've done a magazine article on him and had him on my podcast. Rick Barry was one mm. of the great basketball players of yeah. the 60s and 70s. Leading scorer, great shooter. Both of those guys were asses when they played. Mm. I won't go through the whole word, but they were the mm. ultimate asses. They moved to Denver, Colorado. They don't live in Denver, they live in Colorado, where Pikes Peak is for people. That mm. live in the South. And they lived there. Another famous ex athlete, Bruce Gossage, lives down there. Mm. A lot of people have moved to Colorado, they playing sports and I've interviewed uh, all of them, and I thought, how did this guy who was an ass turn into such a nice guy?
4: Mm-hmm. They
3: finally got it. There's too many of the professional athletes who don't get it until it's too late. When when they're out of the game and they're missing the, you always hear this, Chase. Oh, I missed the camaraderie. I missed the yeah. locker room. I missed my teammates. I don't miss the game, but I miss being around the teammates. Well, those guys don't get it, until it's over with. They they finally start treating fans with more respect. We have too many issues now of where fans are upset that they pay a lot of money to go to games and they can't call out a player Mm. in an NBA game. The player come over and say, and call the referee over and say, get that guy out of the arena. This happened with a couple of weeks ago. Get that that fan out of the arena. That fan just paid $120 to come see you play. He's not allowed to say, you're out of shape, get in the gym, act like you're. I I guarantee you that Luca will get it. Yeah. 15 years now, it is.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Say,
3: oh, yeah, all that's gone, and I'm going to start being nice to people. So I think that uh, you said people that aren't like I just saw that Jay Cutler blamed uh, Brock Purdy for the uh, Super Bowl loss. Jay Cutler, who had a... Went to Vanderbilt, hmm. had a ten-year career in, in, in the NFL. Went to the playoffs once, I think.
0: Maybe probably once. the Bears' best quarterback in my lifetime. I'm thirty-two. Yeah. Uh,
3: biggest jerk in the history of the world, hmm. by far. That i biggest jerk. And he did a reality show with his wife. I think they broke up mm. since then.
1: Yeah.
3: He did the show. Now he's being nice to everybody. You know, he's he's Jay color the nice guy. He joined a country club here in Colorado. It cost $100,000 a year. And he'd take eight guys out, break all the rules, wear sh- shirts untucked. I mean, he's a classic golf clubs. He'd wear his cap backward. They'd throw beer cans on the on the greens and stuff like that. And after about six times there, the president of the club met him as he was coming off the club with his five guys that were all drunk and said, here's your check for $100,000, you're kicked out of the club. That was Jay Cutler in a nutshell. Uh, Players hated him, fans hated him. I thought he was just a complete jerk. So I think you were saying who, who would be, I've tried to give you maybe a couple of people Arnold Palmer played his last round of golf at the Masters, and I'd cover it every year. And it was my most enjoyable sports experience. And I was walking for Arnold Palmer's last round because I'd gotten to know him. I told you, riding on the plane with him. His partner in the uh, in the golf uh, architectural business was a really nice guy. And so we're walking together for this historic last round of Arnold Palmer. First mm-hmm. hole he makes a five. Anybody's familiar with watching Augusta? You know the second hole is a mm-hmm. par five. Uh, Arnold hits two good shots. The third shot is like 90 yards, and he veers over to us. He wasn't coming to see me. He was coming over to see his architectural uh, partner. But he says, mm-hmm. oh, would He goes, "Yeah, thanks for you know coming along for the ride." So he calls his buddy over and says something to him and I asked him I said did he want to talk about memories or something he said no we shouldn't have had that second bottle of Jack Daniels (laughs) last night he hit his third shot on the par five it's like 90 yards and it went sideways all I could think about the whole round was he's hung over like in the movie hangover he's Mm hung over thinking we shouldn't have had so much to drink last night, but he thought, this is my last round or whatever. He played awful, that ape shot seventy-eight, eighty, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But all I could think about to this day is his line to his friend was, We shouldn't have had that open that second bottle of Jack Daniels. So anybody that's ever had two bottles of Jack Daniels will know exactly what he's talking about. I hope nobody listening to the show had. So anyway, but uh, there have been terrible guys. There have been. Fantastic guys that I love to be around Michael Jordan. We've had a mm. great relationship. Uh, we've attended a lot of, uh, when he got out of basketball and went to Birmingham to play mm. baseball, I actually went from Atlanta. I was there for, for something and I went to a, I drove over to Birmingham to watch him play baseball and uh, uh, we played golf and, we talked about his his baseball game, and I knew he was going back to the NBA. He couldn't play baseball. He couldn't hit a curveball. Mm-hmm. But he, what kind of genuine fellow would, you know, a sports writer that he would see occasionally. But we played in that uh, Celebrity Pro Tournament. in uh, The Pro-Am. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, one, the tournament that's in every year. In, uh,
0: Is it in
1: California?
3: Yeah, on the California of Nevada.
1: Yeah, uh, mm-hmm.
3: we played in that and uh, he and I drank all night but I said, let's don't drink two bottles of Jack Davis.
0: <laughs>
3: play. But anyway, I,
0: were you nervous? I, like you're just sitting here with the greatest basketball player of all time, the most decorated everything else. Like, were you nervous like when you're in those situations with somebody like Michael?
3: No, I I think I've only been nervous in 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 uh, being with the uh, like a vice president of the United States hmm. uh, when Alba Gore was vice president uh, he grew up in Tennessee he probably mm-hmm. know that his father was a senator from Tennessee and yep. Al Gore was a journalist at in uh, Nashville and I met him in high school and and even though I had known him not we were not friends but I had known him from you know convention and or journalism convention high school journalism convention and I'd met him a couple of times, I and mean, when I spent some time with him when he was running for president, uh, I was I was nervous. Uh, I, I are you familiar with the band You Two? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And they, uh, I was invited by a rock promoter who was a good friend over to his house to watch a uh, pay-per-view heavyweight championship fight. Mm-hmm. That I didn't. I went to practically every one in Las Vegas for years and years. I sat one day with Muhammad Ali for about three hours, and I think if you treat it like it's a conversation, the worst thing that I hear out of journalists or broadcasters, particularly now, is their question is, "Talk about the game." Yeah, that is not a you. You are a journalist, broadcaster. Mm-hmm. That is the blamest, worst statement you can make.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I think the most important thing, and you know this as a as a podcast host, is to listen to the guest. Mm-hmm. Instead, I have a list of questions and say, okay, that's good. You've just told me about uh, meeting faucet. Uh What do you think about the Super Bowl on Sunday? And you go, "Guy wasn't paying any attention to what I said.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I always listen to people, and I think I became close to people, I mean, I have on my speed dial, it's not to impress anybody, but I have on my speed, like Archie Manning, Peyton Manning, I've got the entire Manning family on speed mm-hmm. dial that I can pick up the phone and call them and ask them about certain things uh, because I had, they were good people and I had good relationships with them. Jay Cutler, I wouldn't pick up the phone and call, call him if we were in the next room or talk to him in the next room. So. Uh, I've been very fortunate because I've never had a job in my life.
1: Yeah.
3: You don't have, forgive me, you don't have a job. We talked about yeah. how hard work it is, but that's not a job. That's, that is you getting to fulfill your wish in life to be in communication, mm. be a podcaster, be a journalist, whatever it might be. I mean, I'm most fortunate. That's why I said I'm like Forrest Dump because he was just a you know, kid with leg problems who ended up, you know, running across the country and winning a touchdown, winning a, 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 a scoring a winning touchdown for Alabama, which didn't yeah. exist. And, and I couldn't even dream. I once asked uh, a player who was from Dukembe, Mutombo.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: he got nice people. He spoke seven languages. And You couldn't understand him in any of the seven languages. <laughs> he had this deep, if you've ever seen the commercials, I think it was yeah. Walmart, or mm-hmm. and he goes, I'm the company, but tumble. He's got mm-hmm. the most incredible voice in the world. It's, it's, he could have been Darth Vader's voice, <laughs> nice guy in the world. And I said to him, You grew up in Africa, did you dream of playing in the NBA? And he said, one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard, he said, I couldn't dream beyond the dirt road. Hmm. Yeah, we we assume every athlete in the United States grows up and says, you know, I want to be a baseball player or I want to be mm-hmm. – you he I, I. when I was uh, eight years old, I wanted to be a writer. And mm-hmm. that followed my dream. And and so when I asked him that, and I thought about it. He couldn't because at the end of that dirt road was, you know, lions and tigers Mm -hmm. and there was no basketball he played soccer he was a seven two soccer player and then he went somewhere on a soccer match and saw basketball he said i think i could do that having that conversation with him gave me a whole new directive about talking to athletes in a world where More and more of our professional athletes in this country are coming from other countries, particularly the NBA, National Hockey League, soccer. We've got Messi playing in the United States. Now, the greatest player, I think, in international soccer history is playing in the United States. He's not playing in Hong Kong. Yeah.
0: I'll and start. we got NFL now, NFL Europe, where OCU Minora is doing his thing in Africa. Like, we're going to have more. The NFL, like, they want to have games. Like, is who's opening? Someone's opening in, like, Brazil next year in the NFL. Um, they're expanding yes. in that room.
3: the Eagles are going to play there. And I'll yeah. tell you who the other team will be. They're not, not going to tell you, but it's going to be the Miami Dolphins. Hmm. Because Miami Dolphins are affiliated with Brazil. Every oh. NFL team has a foreign country. For the Denver Broncos, it's Mexico. So hmm. they tend to put those teams. I've been to, I think, like a dozen of those uh, international football games.
4: And hmm. when
3: I first started going, I went to Tokyo twice for games, uh, Barcelona, Berlin, London twice, Australia. And I, I was writing a note in my book that I'm writing and I'm really not promoting it, so nobody out there pay attention. In Berlin, the Broncos played the Dolphins, and it was John Elway versus Marino. Mm. I was fascinated. They were playing in the 1936. Have you saw, have you seen the movie Boy, Boys in the Boat? I, recommend I have not. It for, it's about the Washington rowing team mm. going to the Olympics. It was a junior varsity at Washington. They ended up going to to, uh, Berlin and winning an Olympic medal in front of Hitler. When I went to the Coliseum in Hitler, I mean, in in Berlin, Germany, I had done research and I wanted to see Hitler's suite. He had a suite, Mm -hmm. that was probably the first suite in the history of sports. And so the people in the stadium took me up there they had an elevator. And I said, mm. so come out at the locker rooms? No. That elevator went down and went into a nearby neighborhood and tunneled so he wouldn't, nobody could see his car coming in or going up. And he he was in that. You've seen the movies, Jesse Owens, and, mm. and everybody's seen some where he's standing over there waiting for you know the German athletes to totally destroy the world, which they didn't do against the American athletes. And to be in that suite and think about Hitler being there and all the atrocities and everything, I'm just constantly amazed. Being in Australia and going to the Outback uh, during the Olympics because I wanted to go where they made the uh, Mad Max movies. Mm (laughs) It was in the middle of Australia. I took like two planes and read uh, Land Rover. Wait, is that Florida. why
0: you wanted to go to Australia to begin with? Was the mat, to see the Mad Max, like where it was filmed and stuff?
3: Okay. I was curious about going to going to the Olympics, but I wanted to see the Mad Max, where they made the Mad Max <laughs> movies. And I wanted yeah. to see Kangaroos. Now, make a real quick story? I, I, we're going on too long, and I, I'm not answering your questions, and people are going, he has gone off the rails. But I went out to the Outback to see where the Mad Max movies were filmed. And mm-hmm. I went to see Kangaroos in the wild. And I went up to a forest ranger, a ranger station. They sent me mm-hmm. out there, 200 miles from nowhere. And I go to the ranger station and I uh, he said, what, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm covering the Olympics back in Sydney. He said, we're like a thousand miles from Sydney. It's like going from LA to St. Louis. That's kind of where mm-hmm. I walk uh, in this country. And he said, what are you doing out here? And I said, I want to see kangaroos in the wild and see Mad Max. He said, well, Mad Max is on the road you're on he mm. kind of said so here's a loaf of bread I'll make this short so here's a loaf of bread go down about five miles on the right there will be a hill when the sun starts to set the kangaroos will come out feed them the bread and you'll see all the kangaroos you want to. so I go down there stand on the hill got this loaf of bread like everybody's got at home I opened it up suddenly as the sun's setting over the hill Uh, 250 kangaroos came over the hill. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Big heads, uh, female uh, kangaroos with babies in their faces. And I went, I was expecting like five. (laughs) (laughs) I have a loaf of bread and I'm not Jesus Christ. I can't turn this into... So I started throwing pieces of bread and backing up towards the car, which is about 100 yards away. And I'm backing them there like closing around me, and I finally get to the car, and I kind of throw the plastic bag with whatever's left. They're jumping on the car, and I start backing up, not wanting to kill any of the kangaroos, and I go back to the ranger station, and I said, and the guy's laughing. He said, Do "You, mate, good <laughs> day, mate. Do you see uh, kangaroos? And I said, yeah. I said, what is your job? Is your job to protect kangaroos? In a while, he said, no, my mm-hmm. job is to kill kangaroos. There are more kangaroos than there are people in this country. The kangaroos <laughs> are all rats here. I said, mm-hmm. how many did you kill today? And I, he said, 82. And I said, 82? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, so I didn't need to be so care- careful about backing up with them all over the car. It was like the birds, if you've ever seen them. And he said, oh, yeah, if you'd have run over five, that would have helped my number for today. And I thought this place is in the world. I'm in the middle. I'm in the, <laughs> as far south as you go in the world. Talking yeah. to a ranger. Rangers in this country prevent forest fires. They protect yeah. bears in the wild. Down there, he's got a gun and he's shooting kangaroos. That's <laughs> to the ranger. So my stories are about sports. Are terribly in Norway, Lillehammer, when you were a younger man. They had the Winter Olympics. I called mm. the, uh, I reached out to the Goodyear Blimp uh, pilot and I said, can I ride with you one day? He said, sure. Mm. We rode all over Lilyhammer and went over about eight events and we saw deer running across the the, the hills. And it was one of the most fascinating, so you, you were talking to me about, most fascinating things that uh, I'd ever seen in sports. And I always tried to take sports, uh, in the proper perceptive perspective and not treat it as life or death. Mm-hmm. I would go to the Olympics. Rick Rowley, who's a famous mm-hmm. sports tri- that I've mentored, was with Sports Illustrated and was the most famous sports writer probably in the country. He, they had the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay and he said, what are you doing? I want to follow you. What are you doing? because he would always say, what's the story here? And I said, I'm going to a nudist colony. And he said, why are you going to a nudist colony? I said, how do you tell at the nudist colony who they're fans of? Are they fans of dealers? <laughs> he said, well, oh, that's a great story. Can I go with you? I said, sure. So we went to outside of Tampa, about 25 miles, to a nudist resort mm-hmm. that was located on Bare Ass Road, and there were about 100 nudists, and we went around saying, are you pulling for the Pittsburgh Steelers, or are you pulling for the Cowboys? And, and they said, why don't you join us? And Rick and I looked at and said, no, we're just here as journalists. And I come back and people go, so what, who did you write? It would be media day at the Super Bowl, because mm-hmm. there's 5,000 journalists asking stupid questions. And so Rick Riley said, that was the best story of the week is how do you figure out who the fan is pulling for if they have no clothes on? And that was the whole <laughs> anyway, but, you know, i kinda fun with it, just like you do with you.
0: I love it. Well, Woody, uh, we'll go out on this front here. Um, you're, we're in the Tennessee hat, and I'm curious. As seeing as someone who's seen a lot of Tennessee athletics over uh, over the years, who would be on your Tennessee volunteer sports Mount Rushmore? Who all time fits the bill for you? Who Who are those four?
3: Well, Todd Helton, uh, okay, is in every memory right now, and there's a street named after him. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. along with Pig Manning, so those, those those two, I would say that. Uh, I'm going to put somebody in there you've never heard of, but I'm going to leave everybody with the opportunity to Google him. In high school, one of my best friends was a guy named Charlie Fulton. Mm-hmm. He, went, he went to Tennessee when there was a single wing. Our high school in Memphis played single wing when it was no longer being played. Tennessee yeah. was one of the last major schools to play single wing. He was the last single wing tailback. And the first quarterback in a real system mm-hmm. for Tennessee. And he went on to become the most valuable player in the Canadian Football League. He was my high school teammate. He was, his name is Charlie Fulton. I put him on my Mount Rushmore. Uh,
0: I love
1: that.
3: Basketball, I became very close friends with a guy named Tom Borwinkle. Now he's hmm. not, he doesn't blow up Mount Rushmore. Tom Borwinkle had played at a military school in 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 kentucky he was seven feet tall when there weren't many seven footers and he uh couldn't walk and chew gum and that's a famous old cliche Mm -hmm. he went on to play with the bulls with michael jordan and won three or four championships as a starting Mm -hmm. center and then got a seat on the chicago uh, stock exchange had a brilliant life for a guy that couldn't walk and chew gum and, and, and was just seven feet tall. And I would walk around campus or Tennessee with him and girls would say, how tall are you? And he'd say six, eight. He never wanted anybody embarrassed him to be seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, I, I think that, uh, 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 help me out here. Uh, the there was the two players that were basketball players.
0: Oh, Bernard King like, and Ernie Grunfeld?
3: Yes. I would, I'm trying to think of who, I mean, latter day would be better, mm. but the Ernie and Bernie show, Yeah, I I would have to put them side by side on that mountain. Yeah. Uh, so maybe Charlie Fulton won't ever be on anybody else's, but he was, he was all SCC, he, he, but he played two different, he, he was there for the end of the single wing in the beginning of, but I, I, I also think you have, would have to put a long-time coach on there who was maybe the greatest football player. It also been Peyton Manning that was there that finished second in the Iceman Trophy and then came back to coach the team for years and, years. Mm. Uh, and Johnny Majors, who we're talking about.
0: Left the national yep. champion to coach Tennessee. Pardon me? He left. The, I mean, he won a national title at Pitt, and then still proceeded to leave that team to go to Tennessee. Yeah,
3: uh, yeah, and I, I guess that that would be it for me in terms of. Uh, I know when I was in high school. I mean, in college at Tennessee, I saw the most until I saw Dr. J. I watched uh, Pete Maravich and wrote about covered Pete Maravich for four years, and then mm-hmm. come in pro basketball when he was with uh, Atlanta and New Orleans, the New Orleans jazz. Mm-hmm. There's the question of the day for people. Utah jazz. I've been to Utah a hundred times. You can't find a place that plays jazz. In, in Do you know City. how
0: dumb I am, Woody? Like I always thought growing up, cause I love the logo and you have the mountain range behind it. I just grew up thinking the Jazz was the Mountain Range in Utah. Like I just always thought that that's what that was, and I never put two and two together. It took me years. The, so embarrassing that I just thought there was a Jazz Mountain Range, and that's why they were called the Jazz. Or they called the Ice Jazz over there, and like that's why it was. I I never put two and two together growing up. Never thought about it any other way.
3: They were the Jazz and they played it in the Superdome.
0: Mm-hmm. That was the
3: first basketball is played in a football stadium before
1: yeah.
0: Houston.
3: Or whatever. And I was amazed that the players could shoot because there was no background. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been people have adopted to playing in football stadiums, but I, I would talk to players and they'd say, you've got no range. You, yeah. you don't get the perspective of, of what you're doing here. But Pete Maravich, uh, watching him in college, if there had been a three-point line, he'd have averaged 70 points a game because everything mm-hmm. he shot was from 30 feet. Yeah, I mean, he rarely drove to the basket. So I would put him on my all-time college mm. because he, I never saw a performer as I did with Pete Merritt. He would have been a
0: Steph Curry, a modern Steph Curry if he had played later in life.
3: Yeah, except a yeah. much taller. That's yeah. why I said, there was Elgin how, Baylor. How tall was
1: Pete? 6'4". Okay.
3: And Steph is what? 5'10", so he was a much bigger. There wasn't a ball handler like P. Maravich. I mean, he did Mm. videos for years where people uh, adopted to him. So I guess that's the answer to your question. I I thought you were going to ask me about, you know, I'm wearing this Tennessee hat. They sing merch from Tennessee all the time because I think they put Mm. me in the media and that's a payment of, you know, famous The legendary things you're talking about. But -hmm. I'll must. i end on this story about why I became a Tennessee football fan. I was born in 1946, right at the end of the war. So I'm a baby boomer. In 1948, Ole Miss and and Tennessee would always play in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Go back and look it up. My dad took me to an Ole Miss-Tennessee game in 1948. I was a year not two years old, and it was what mm-hmm. in which was a rarity. And I didn't know that. Of course, I was two years old. I didn't know it until I was 12 or 13. I asked my dad about it. He said, he was a Tennessee... I said, you were from Mississippi. He said, I was a Tennessee fan. I liked the colors. Mm-hmm. I liked uh, Tennessee under a famous general who was mm-hmm. coaching the team. And he said, Maybe you'll grow up to uh, be a Tennessee fan. And my dad, who, who had terrible diabetes, died young. And uh, I thought my dad wants me to go to Tennessee first person in my family. They would go to college and he wants me to be a Tennessee fan. And so when I wear this hat, it's not only done, you know to honor Tennessee, it's my alma mater, but to honor my dad. Who's, Tennessee fan, when he was from Mississippi. <laughs> it took me to I a game. Was too young to even know, you know, where I was. So, but he he thought, you know, that's what a dad does. Dad takes a son to a sports event. He took mm-hmm. me. I I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. I, I landed on this. We were, he would he take me to minor league baseball in Memphis, and that was a Southern mm-hmm. Association. They're from Georgia. There would be the Atlanta Crackers, which you can't yeah. name it, Atlanta Crackers now. That mm. has a little old combination. Birmingham Barons, the yeah. New Orleans uh, team. Memphis uh, was the Chicks, Chickasaws, mm. named after Native Americans. And my dad would take me to the minor games, and I would say to him, in the fifties, why can't we, we never used derogatory terms? But my parents would say, colored people, because that was not considered uh, uh, derogatory. I mean, it would be now. And I'd say, why can't they sit in the stands with us? They had to sit out in my field. And he said, they're not allowed to do that. And I said, why? He said, it's unfair. It's not right. And the next week, he took me to a Negro pro league Mm. that was the Memphis uh, Red Sox. And there were the same Southern association white teams. And there were these black teams that were in the South. Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. Mm. Uh, And my dad said, don't you find it funny son? And I was a kid and he said, white people can sit anywhere they want to in this state." you know, in this mm-hmm. ballpark. But and black people could sit anywhere that next to each other. He said that's the way it should be. So I I try to I'm I'm I'll close with this I I've been uh voted to the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame and the induction is in uh April seventeenth with athletes and I'm and mm-hmm. always told you, you shouldn't put journalists in a sports hall of fame, maybe you put them in a wing or something, or in the bathroom, but mm. I was, I was very honored about that. And, uh, Peyton will probably give back his award because he's in that too. And you mm. want to give back another one. So he give this back and Todd Helton's in the, you know, there are a lot of Tennessean or mm. Tennessee backgrounds that are in the Colorado sports hall of fame. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, my name is Woodrow Wilson-Page Jr. And I'm going to spend my 10-minute speech honoring Woodrow-Page Sr.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: He's the one who should be giving that. So, I don't want to end on a bad note, but that's that's a uh, sad note or whatever. But I think he deserved, because without him taking me to a Tennessee Ole Miss game in 1948, without him taking me to minor league baseball games, without teaching me about sports and playing a you know, ball in the backyard. And I have one daughter, I'll end on the, my story. I have one daughter, she's a very successful computer scientist. And so when she was about eight or nine, I, I came home from covering a game or something and she had to go up with a ball in the backyard. And mm-hmm. she said, dad, let's throw the ball around. And I said, why would you want to do that? And she said, "I know you wanted to have a son." I said, "No, I wanted to have a daughter." She said, "Well, I'm going to be your son today." And so we tossed the ball, and mm-hmm. that took back to my dad and what he did for me is that she felt like you know I didn't have that father-son relationship, but I can promise you that my daughter is my best friend now. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad. I'm glad I had a daughter because if I'd had a son, I'd have to drag his ass. To every sports event I ever went to, and she never wanted to go to any of them. So, and I've done, uh I, I, get, I know this is going to sound strange, but I figured it up one day. I've done 10,000 sports events in the wow. last years. I mean, uh, I was doing over 200 sports events for the last 50 years. I'm 77. Mm. I was doing this in high school. I was doing it in college. I was doing it. So, you You figured it out. I was doing 200 columns a year for 50 years. That's 10,000 sports events that I've covered. So Mm -hmm. take that with you, Chase, try and match that one. I'm not going to catch
0: that Woody. There's no way I'm catching that. There's no way.
3: Uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing.
0: Uh, I think it's great. It's like you said, it just kind of speaks to the forest Gump nature where you just found your way into everything. Like you're, you're just, you're all over the place. And this is why uh, the book's coming. I can't wait to read it. I, I'm excited for when this uh, comes out, uh, Woody.
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm i going through the, the people I've met and I will leave this. That's why I ask you if uh, you're familiar with uh, YouTube. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't say story. So my pr- promoter friend invited me over to his house. He had a gigantic Cheers bars, bar mm-hmm.
1: that
4: he
3: had the tv show that he yeah. installed my friend and i who's a talk show host here Gil Wiley. we sat down at the bar we're waiting for the, the the pay-per-view fight to come on and two guys come over and sit next to us and the guy leads over to me and he said uh uh you guys fight fans and i said well he's got a radio talk talk show and i i do uh, tv about sports and he said oh we mm-hmm. love sports because, uh, we love football and i said uh, you do NFL football? He said, no, football. We're from Ireland. I said, oh, you're from Ireland. Uh, uh, What do you do there? We have a band. And I said, oh, really? What's the name of your band? He said, you two. This was the Mm -hmm. biggest band in the world, and they were in Denver for for a concert, and the promoter invited them over because they loved watching championship fighting. And we're sitting Mm -hmm. there going, well, I hope your band does well. <laughs> and it goes another forest goat moment in my life, where mm-hmm. I act, I act, acting like uh, you know, chocolates.
1: <laughs> yeah, so,
3: thank you for having me on. I'm sorry we've gone over, uh, but no, uh, this
0: has been amazing.
3: Thank you. I'm for just me.
0: thank you for being and here. I, I mean, this has been an absolute delight. I've learned a lot, I've laughed a lot. I. Woody, you're just the best and uh, it's cool to connect after watching and reading you for so many years and uh, um, it's just too hey Tennessee brings people together you and I like you, you never know where the Tennessee ball network uh, might take somebody
3: yeah I I still think in my life and I will end on this that
0: uh,
3: having been a broadcast I mean I've actually done uh, three games at the Super Bowl and mm-hmm. uh, Monday Night Football, and I was a candidate to be uh, uh, I got beat out by a guy named Tony to be in the booth on Monday Night Football, mm-hmm. and, and I shouldn't have done it, but uh, I think my training in Knoxville and my love for Knoxville and being able to walk downtown from the campus and go past where there was a World's Fair, and mm-hmm. I think that remnants of it and that had a lot of meaning in my life because it trained me how to be a broadcaster it trained me how to be in radio tv because i did that show where i interview somebody on that would show up on saturdays or sundays and writing for the papers there that uh that was my moment of use that i actually learned that maybe i could do this for a living so i had the I have a strong connection to Knoxville, Tennessee, and the people of Tennessee, and uh, I've spent more than half my adult life in, in Denver, but I've uh, never lost my love for the state, and and especially uh, the uh, the college that kind of put up with me as incorrigible, and I, and I always, uh, there's a bridge over Cumberland, so you went to school in Tennessee, what with mm. it? Yep. Bridge over Cumberland. I was a right. columnist. I would write every day for the paper. We had people killed crossing that street to Cumberland, crossing from one dormitory to the other dormitory on mm-hmm. the other side of I kept writing about it. It became, it became fanatic about
1: mm-hmm.
3: getting hit because there was no light there. Yeah. And I kept writing. There's got to be a bridge. There's got to be a bridge yeah. over. There. And they finally put up a bridge. And they called me and they said, uh, we want you to come to the bridge. You've been that what about this for a year and a half? And I went up and they have a little sign on the bridge that said, oh,
1: to do
0: <laughs> I love
1: that.
3: I, I went back about two years ago. I told you that it was the last time. And I went up and walked over the bridge. Because it saved mm-hmm. me all the life. Yeah. I walked over the bridge and somebody had taken my name off the bridge. <laughs>
0: I'm going to work on that, Woody. That's my new, that I'm here locally. I'm going to work on getting Woody Page's name back on the bridge.
3: A lot of statues taken down in the South. Mm. I think they're taking down nameplates of people who had not distinguished themselves and so on. But but that bridge was my, was my uh, accomplishment while I was at the University of Tennessee.
0: <laughs> I love it. Woody, thank you so much for the time. Go watch him on Around the Horn each and every weekday. Go read him in the Denver Gazette. Go to WoodyPage.com for all information about what Woody's got going on each and every day. And Woody, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have to check back in again soon.
3: Stay in touch, Chase. Uh And all of you out there, email me at WoodyPage.com or WoodyPage. It's page at uh, Woody, com, And I, I respond mm-hmm. to everything. I spend entirely too much time talking like i have on this, this show you got me started and i spend uh, too much time replying to everybody that writes me because uh, it, it's like what athletes who sign autographs mm. they say uh, if people are nice enough to ask for an autograph i mean it, i get that with photo ops so People, you
4: know, mm.
3: and i always tell them it's five dollars and they go you're charging five dollars i said no If you want a selfie with me, I'll give you five. (laughs) Take
0: care, Chase. I love it, Woody. Talk soon.
4: Nicely
3: done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah.